Right, good morning, friends. Let's uh, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll continue our journey. <clears throat> this is a little bit of a discouraging chapter. I mean, the chapter's not discouraging, but just the reality of human behavior and how we think and so forth. And, you know, there's kind of a tremendous irony sometimes in the Christian life where, you know, we sing songs uh, like this last one. It's, it's one of the favorite ones for me that we sing. Um, you know, his goodness has followed me all the days of my life. Right? That's a quote out of the Psalms. Uh, you know, there's a lot of songs, and, and songs minister to different people differently. And I can appreciate the action songs of I'll do this for God, and I'll do that for God, and I'm going to shout for God. But I think in general, I would consider myself to be a pretty beggarly and cowardly person. And I have a hard time singing those. Uh, because I want to be true, I guess. But the testimony that God has been nothing but good to me, that's an easy one to sing about. The testimony that God has been nothing but faithful to me, when I haven't been faithful, when I'm not the best, the brightest, the smartest, the hardcorest, just the reality that uh, he's good, that God is good, and that encourages me. And it's a sharp contrast to chapter 6, and as you guys know, we've been going through Corinthians, if you've been here with us, and... Paul is now responding to some concerns that the household of Chloe raised. Evidently, there was a letter or some sort of um, conversation or some sort of uh, dialogue between this household of Chloe, this woman and her household, and Paul. And Paul is now writing back because of the problems that are going on in their church, which is in itself is very encouraging, right? That someone doesn't just say, well, this church sucks, I'm out, and just bounce. Uh, but they were willing to write a letter to someone that they thought could help and say, hey, our church is fairly dysfunctional. Can you help me with that? And so Paul is writing back this letter. And today's topic, you know, uh, last week we got the joy of uh, when to expel someone from the church. And then this week we get people that are suing each other. Uh, people that are demanding their rights. People that are demanding, and they had the rights, right? And the Roman government, you could, there, believe it or not, there are a lot of similarities between the Roman government government even though it went from a senate, it went from a somewhat of a democracy to a, uh, uh, an emperor, a monarchy, with kind of like a senate that kind of would say when it didn't like things. But you know, even though it kind of took on that form, um, that there was a lot of actually really good laws, laws that are similar to ours. And so in the Roman uh, culture, you could sue people to get lost, uh, something that they took from you, or somehow one of their actions caused you loss or something like that, very similar to ours. Um, and so there's hundreds of thousands of lawsuits every day in our country um, uh, that are civil, and, and that's what's uh, happening here, not hundreds of thousands, but in the church at Corinth, people are feeling lost, and so they're suing. So we'll read our, our section here this morning, and we'll get into it. It's a fairly sobering section. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know, and that, that actually is going to come up six times in this chapter, this do you not know. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those who have, uh, who, whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have completely been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, no men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So a fairly sobering chapter. Uh, there's kind of two things going on. 
One, you have lawsuits. So what's happening is two people in the church, two people from, that are Christians, they're not taking their beef to other Christians, wise people in the church. They're actually going right to the Roman government. And so the issue there is that, number one, you have people suing people, which he says, uh, there, uh, down around verse 8, he says, if you're suing people, if you have this kind of disgruntlement, you have actually already been defeated as a Christian. Right? So if you've gone that far, something bad happened way back here. Does that make sense? So that's, the, that's one issue. The, the, the next issue is this. He says you're bringing it in front of unbelievers. So why is that an issue? Uh, you may have noticed in your life that, there is, that Jesus gets a lot of bad press. Right? A lot of people say a lot of things about what Jesus taught. A lot of people say a lot of things about what Jesus thought. Uh, a lot of people say a lot of things about what the church is like or what it should be like. And that's the, that's the, It's interesting because who Jesus is and what church should be like, every single unbeliever is an expert on. Have you noticed that? You know, and we are too, oftentimes. And so one of the problems in this case where they begin to sue people is that we, our, our testimony right, of Jesus is that he's full of love and forgiveness and kindness. And, and probably there's probably some of us that in our homes we have, you know, this is the greatest commandment to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, we, we, we have all this kind of, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, propaganda almost, except it's true. But we put it up, but then we're immediately like, you're taking something from me. Now I'm going to try to dominate you. I'm going to stop you from doing this. So we don't know exactly what's going on here. We know that he says that they are defrauding each other. And we know that he says that they're suing each other. So we don't know what exactly was happening or what the issues were or whatnot, but we know that was happening. So we'll make up a scenario so we can kind of go through this chapter with our scenario. Let's say that you can put yourself as the loaner or the, or, or, or the uh, loanee. I don't care, the borrower. But let's say that somebody borrows a lawnmower from you. It can be whatever. I don't care. A jet ski, whatever. But somebody borrows something from you. And they're driving. They, they get your fresh new lawnmower or whatever it might be, and it's in the back of their truck or sticking out of the trunk because it's his Pacific County. And you're driving down the road, right? And it flies out of the back, does a cartwheel, smacks a tree, bends in half, and it's gone, right? So everybody in that scenario has some options now, right? If you're the borrower, you can kind of shove it back into your trunk, right? Drive it back over, take it out, throw it on the front lawn, and drive away, right? That's, op that's an option. You could do that. You could take it up, bring it, knock on the door, say, hey, there's your mower. Sorry about your luck. It fell out. I'll see you at church on Sunday, right? That's an option that you could do. You could come, you know, it'd be one of apathy. You could come and be belligerent and be like, yeah, your, mo and, and this, your mower is so lame, it fell out of my trunk, Right? I mean, we laugh. People say stuff like that, right? I mean, people say stuff all the time about how something happened, which is absolutely ridiculous, but they'll say it. So you can respond with, with being belligerent and malicious. You can respond with apathy. Or you might respond and say, bring it back and say, hey, you know what? This just fell out of my car. I didn't secure it properly. And it smacked a tree, and now it's destroyed. But I can't pay you back. But maybe we could work something out to find a way to pay back. Right, So you can respond with genuineness, with apathy, with maliciousness, all sorts of different ways that you could respond. In that sense, there's kind of two bad ways and one good way. Right, The good way to respond, or the, the, maybe the Jesus-honoring way to respond in that section is to say, I borrowed your mower because I can't afford my own, and now I've destroyed your, and I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to make this right, but I would like to. Now, if you're the lender, you have some options too. You can have a freak out. Right? You can look at your mower and start weeping and be like, this is my mower, my own, my precious. Right? This was the one mower to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. I love this, this mower. Right? I love this mower. And I know because I have a mower and I love it. I'm just going to be honest. It's, I think about it a lot. Like, maybe this is idolatry. Maybe I should get rid of my mower. But I have a mower that I really like. That's how shallow of a man I am. But anyway, so you can come out and you can just be, you know, belligerent back. Are you an idiot? How did you not strap this down? I would have given you a strap. 
I can't believe this is happening. Do you understand what you've done? Right? All the things that we can muster up and be belligerent. We could be apathetic, but it's unlikely, and be like, eh, whatever. I'm not even going to talk to you anymore. Probably not really what's going to happen. Or lastly, you could say, wow, that's disappointing. I wish that that had not happened to my mower, but it has, and now we need to find a way forward, a way to figure this out, because I don't have a mower now, and I have an HOA, <laughs> right? And they're going to come along, and they're going to find me because my grass is three and a half inches tall, you know, or whatever, right? A housing association, we know how this works. You give three people in a place a lot of power, and then pretty soon they're just they get crazy with it, sometimes. I don't live in an HOA, so I'm not making any accusations. I live in the opposite of an HOA. I live in the county, so it's like, hey, you want to throw trash and trailers everywhere? You're on it. So, but anyway, aside from that, so we, we have options how we respond. But in this case, the respondents, they're responding poorly, right? Because that's, he's, now Paul's writing back. So we know that for the most part, generally speaking, people are not responding in a good way. In fact, their response is, they're saying, I'm going to sue you to get what you owe me. So that first problem that we mentioned is that you have ruined a testimony when you do that. Because you've now gone to Rome and you've said, these people that I claim to be my brothers and sisters in Christ are this person, that they, I'm actually not going to forgive them, as, as Christ has, has, has uh, told me to forgive. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm angry with them, and we couldn't work it out amongst ourselves. We actually need Caesar to govern in our church. We need Caesar to tell our church what's right and what's wrong, right? And, and that's, that's very negative. On top of that, well, again, just to reiterate, the biggest problem there is to try to, on the one hand, say, do you want to come to church with me and find Christ, who is full of love and forgiveness for sin, and can you help me adjudicate this? I'm going to sue my brother and, you know, whatever. And the, and the thing is, when you sued someone in Rome, it's like, it's, it's, it's worse than here in the fact that, like, bad things could happen to that person. If you get sued here and you can't pay it, and let's say you make $100 a month, they're going to garnish some money. Right? That's what's going to happen. If you get sued here, some crazy lawsuit, you don't make a lot of money, you owe someone a million bucks now, what they're going to do is they're going to garnish, and there's a law that says how much they can garnish, and they're going to start taking some of your wages. Disappointing, but probably not life-ending. Right? Rome is a different statute. You had different debtors' prisons. You had all sorts of different things that could be not only uh, destructive to the individual, that you're trying to sue, but also to the family of that individual, right? And if you think about it, so Rome as a city is about a million people at this time. And most impoverished citizens, 200,000 people, 200, people in Rome got daily or, or weekly handouts of grain just to make cornbread uh, or, or, uh, or flatbread, one of the two. And they didn't have a place to cook it. They had to take it to bakers. Bakers were incredibly wealthy in Rome. And so that's what you're dealing with. And so if you're suing someone, you're, you're suing them, really, there's not a lot for them to give. Most people lived in like an apartment that would be like the size of our stage right here. They actually had five-story apartments. The poorest people live on top. And, uh, and that's, you lived in that with your whole family. It was dirt floor. Even on top, it was just filthy. There's no vacuums, right? It's, they don't sweep. You can, but most people couldn't own that. They, they couldn't. They're just impoverished. So you have this whole dynamic that's occurring. So number one is the testimony. Number two, what you're demonstrating is that you're focusing on what they're demonstrating. They're more concerned about the problem and the item than they are about the person, which is fundamentally anti-Christ, right? That's the, that's the complete opposite of what we claim to believe. That we claim to believe that the most important, you know, everything here, everything that we see, even the, the ground itself, there is nothing eternal around us except the soul of the person next to me, right? That's the only thing of eternal value in this whole room. Now, it has temporal value. Obviously, the coffee does. I mean, there's temporal values, right? We're into that. But as far as what will eternally last, there is nothing here but our souls, and that's it. So because of that, the highest priority of the Christian, and we've been talking about this from the beginning, right? We are not here just to get results of behavior. We're not here to demand behavior from people. We're here to see lives change 
in a supernatural way. And so what's happening is people are demanding certain behaviors. They're demanding what they feel like is being owed, and they're, they're shaming Christ. They're, they're ruining the testimony. And they're also destroying people around them by doing it. And so Paul says, you know, there's, there's, a big, there's an issue here at hand. So one might ask, well, because he makes some interesting statements. He says, verse 2, he says, Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Now, most likely, he's not saying that you will judge other individuals. Because when you read, for example, there's two judgments, and one in 2 Corinthians 5 and one in Revelation 19 or 20, whatever it is. And he makes the point, the, the, the Revelation one is the one that we usually talk about. It's the great white throne judgment, right? And in the great white throne judgment, the issue at hand is, is your name written in the book of life? And if it is not, then you are sent to the place where God is not, right? We refer to it as hell. It is the place where his goodness does not abide. The other judgment is the, the Bema or Bema seat judgment, in, in the Greek word, depending on how you'd like to pronounce it. And that judgment is a, it's the, the, the Bema seat or the Bema seat is actually the name of the podium from the Greek Olympics. And so the Bema seat judgment was, is not, it's the judgment of Christians and it's the idea of a reward ceremony. What did you do for Christ? So those are your two judgment seats. So this idea that you're going to like sit down and judge other people is more is unlikely. It seems to be more the idea of either a millennial reign, right? Because we know that f- fidelity for, for people will, will mean some sort of authority in the millennial reign, like whether it's being like a mayor or something like that in the city. It's not entirely clear what's going on. Um, or it could be the idea, and most likely, uh, given the, the word here, it's a, a judgment of the world system, that you'll be a judge over the world system. So the second thing he says, though, is he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? So again, the, the Bible's pretty silent about that anywhere else. There's a, there's a couple ideas, a couple references to angel judgment, but these are things that we don't necessarily have all the information on. But we know this, and this is the implication. The implication is, you're going to have some, some positions and some opportunities of great gravity, right? That sounds like fairly serious authority. That sounds like fairly difficult issues to, to judge over, doesn't it? It does to me. Um, to be able to judge an angel or to be able to judge a world system or have some sort of organizational authority in uh, uh, the millennial reign, right? So those, the point is this. Can you not look at the issue of a mower and figure out what is right when this is ultimately your calling? So that might create in us a little bit of concern, right? Because we might think, how can I have wisdom for that? How can I develop wisdom for that? And that's, I, I want to pause for a second because wisdom is a very important concept to the Christian life, right? Especially because... It, one of the most difficult things I think that we deal with is how do I determine God's will for my life? This is something actually I really enjoy talking about because I think scripturally we make it significantly more complicated than we need to. We have a lot of, of literature, whether it be the Proverbs, uh, you know, other writings by Solomon, some of the Psalms, you know, different places. And, and even I think you can make an argument really for, for the, the Gospels, the narratives, uh, the doctrine, you know, the letters from Paul, we have an astronomical amount of biblical literature that talks about wisdom. So wisdom is the idea of properly applying knowledge, right? We talk about that a lot here. That you know something is, is one thing, but then to take that knowledge and apply it in a way that is productive, that's knowledge. So for example, if you know, right, if you know that knowing that leaving your dirty clothes on the bathroom floor will tick off your spouse, that's just knowledge, right? If you leave them there, you cannot be surprised that you have an argument in about an hour, right? You can't step back and go, how is this happening? I don't understand. Because wisdom would be that you pick them up. And that saves the argument it saves disrespecting your spouse because they feel like you don't care about them because you're forcing them to do some menial labor that you were unwilling to do. Right? You're like, wow, you're really evaluating this because this is how marriages get destroyed. Don't, don't, don't think I'm being overzealous here or I'm being melodramatic. 
Things like that destroy marriages. Because people finally, it builds up, and it builds up, and it builds up, and finally they, they develop a narrative in their head that you don't love them or you don't take care of them, and then that's what you're demonstrating. And then finally something happens and they snap and they go, I'm done with you. So wisdom, you don't need the Holy Spirit there, do you? You don't have to go, oh Lord, could you make a dove fly out of a bush so that I could know to pick up my clothes? I need confirmation on this. Right? But that's what we do. We love omens. We love casting lots. We love all the witchcraft items of old. We just relay, we, we relabel them. And we call it Bible roulette. Right? I'm going to spin the pages till I find what I want. Or, or, or we say, I'm waiting for a sign or these different things. I'm not saying God doesn't speak. The Holy Spirit definitely speaks. But honestly, the Holy Spirit needing to speak oftentimes is like way down here because we have all this wisdom that we can contribute. Now, the interesting thing about wisdom, if you were to go to the Proverbs and you read like Proverbs really kind of one through eight is kind of the introduction, but, but specifically in one and two, Solomon begins kind of this, this diary, this monologue, if you will, where he says, do you want wisdom? In chapter two, he says, here's how you get it. And he starts laying out a whole lot of verbs, seeking, searching. If you, and he says, if you search for her like silver, meaning giving wisdom value over other things, like sitting on your couch, for example. There's those things where oftentimes in wisdom, it's just a matter of slowing down and considering, actually proactively searching. So we'll go back to the clothes incident. You can sit down for a second or you, you, you can throw your clothes on the floor and you have a whole shower. And if you're like 15, that can be like half an hour, right? <laughs> if you're a 46-year-old male, it's like three minutes. <laughs> but you have a whole shower time, right, to be able to think about your clothes if you want to. But see, we have all this other stuff. Right? We have to make a decision because I could use my shower time to figure out what I need to do on my phone game. You know, to get my Clash of Clans going better. I could use the time in my shower to think about, you know, whatever. All, there's all sorts of things, right? What, what the next episode of my TV show is going to hold or who's going to win Dancing with the Stars or whatever it might be, which are all fine things to think about. Nobody's upset that you're thinking about that. But if you want wisdom, you actually have to invest, and I have to invest. That's the key about wisdom. So I take that, those minutes I have in the shower... And I can think, what would happen if I left those on the floor? The other 13 times I did, it caused an argument. And it felt a little unjust to me, honestly. <laughs> but you know what? What if I did something crazy and I reached down and I picked them up and put them in a hamper? And all of a sudden, I'm searching for wisdom like silver because I'm saying, me having a good relationship with my family members... It's worth investing in. It's worth thinking about. It's worth considering. I'm going to mull it over in my mind. Not just, ah, whatever. The opposite of wisdom is you go, does it really matter? Does it really matter if I have a 14th argument about my socks on the floor? And wisdom would kick in and say, yes, it does. Right? You don't need the Holy Spirit to tell you it does. You don't need a bush with flames out of it to tell you it does. You don't need a bird flying over your head. You don't need the dice to come up a certain way. You don't need the numbers to line up in the pages of your Bible. You don't need any of that. You just need to know that this is how human beings work. And if I continue to disrespect a human being, that there will be fallout from that, right? And so when, when we think about how does wisdom work, it's so important that we be those that seek wisdom. Now, obviously, when you're sitting and judging an angel or judging the world system or however that works, I have no idea, there will be certain things that change, right? Because, like, for example, in the end of this book, Paul says, one day we, are, we will know as we are known. And so, so one day when we, have, we shed these bodies and we receive a new body that will also receive with that a knowledge and a, and, a, and a platonic intimacy with Christ and with one another that will be unparalleled, that we will know him and one another as he as well as he knows us, which is what we all want, isn't it? 
Isn't that what every human being on the planet wants? To be completely known and not rejected? To be able to, to be whoever they are without fear? That's what heaven is. I'm convinced that's a big part of what makes heaven heaven. I mean, you know, mansions and whatever, that's cool. But to finally be at peace with your, in your own heart and with everyone around you and with Christ, that sounds like a nice afternoon. So we are those that even though those things will change, to be able to be contributing and dealing with conflict in church were those that need to seek wisdom. Now, you don't have to. You can go your whole life as a saved individual and be unwise. But you and I, if we do that, we will repeatedly be asking ourselves, why are these things happening? Uh, Thrice has a song. I think I read it one time here. It's a tremendous song. It's called Black Honey. And the whole song is about a guy who wants honey, and he keeps reaching into uh, bees, you know, hives to get honey, and he doesn't understand why he keeps getting stung. And, and it's, it's got a funny refrain because, he, you know, he says, I put my hand in a swarm of bees, but this time it'll be different. This time I'll be all right. You know, and he goes through, it's a whole, there's multiple, you know, verses and so forth. But the whole point that he's making is, I deserve and I want honey on my table, and I'm going to keep reaching to where I should know it's going to destroy me. And then when it, when, I, when it does and I keep getting stung, I'm going to blame other things for it. And so wisdom is just taking responsibility for ourselves. And saying, if, you know, if I speak to someone poorly, there's going to be an outcome to that. If I, if I neglect certain things, there's going to be an outcome to that. So wisdom is something to be sought after. And it's something that's very helpful in, in, in what we're doing and in, in what God has for us. James 1 tells this. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally without reproach. Meaning God doesn't go, are you serious? Need wisdom again? There's no reproach in it. He's, the, he's a free giver. So we'll keep going here in verse 4. He says this, Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose, uh, those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Now, there's different translations for this. Like if you have a King James, it probably says something to the effect of, uh, you, should bring a, you should bring these um, uh, disagreements to the least in your church. And that's probably not actually the thought exactly. Uh, the NIV, which I'm reading out of, and then you have the ESV and the NASB, all say something fairly similar, which is not the idea that you should go to the person who seems the simplest and has the least amount of wisdom in the church and then ask him what they, you should do. That's like com- completely counter-indicative of the entire rest of Scripture. It's more the idea that why are you going... So you're taking this to an unjust judge. You're taking this to someone who is not a believer doesn't have believers' values, and whose lifestyle, especially in the Greek-Roman world, is scorned in the church, meaning it's something that is absolutely rejected by the church. So you're going to that person to try to figure out what you need. Here's the thing, and I really like the way the the, the wording here is in the NIV, where he he says, do you ask for a ruling? Do you ask for a ruling? You know, the funny thing is, this is absolutely human behavior. This is how we work. And the question still remains, in every context, who do you ask for a ruling? Who do I ask for for a ruling? In other words, let's say, let's say that you have something going on in your life. Let's say that you are having, I don't know, some sort of conflict with someone, right? You're having conflict. And you're upset about this conflict, whatever it might be. And we'll just use their example. Somebody owes you money, Right? So you, somebody owes you money, they can't pay you, they won't pay you. You've maybe asked some people at the church or you've kind of tried to find some, some sort of counsel on it and, and the counsel that you received was, hey, you should forgive that person and let's see what God will do to, to, to work in that person's heart and, and maybe provide for you too. But you don't like that counsel or I don't like that counsel. I don't, maybe you do. I don't like that counsel. And I'm like, that's stupid because I want to get what I want and I'm really mad that this person wronged me because they shouldn't have. So you go to the place of extreme wisdom, work. The break room at work, more specifically. And you go to the break room at work, and you sit down with the coworkers, people like Plato, right? These just radical thinkers. And you sit down with them, and you say, this happened. And then my church said I should forgive them. Can you believe that? 
And these masters of wisdom say to you, your church is stupid. You shouldn't forgive them. You should get what's owed you. Because that's the most important thing in this life. To get yours and to not be trampled. And we go, I like that ruling. I'm going to walk in that ruling because these great philosophers have handed it to me who have absolutely no interest in biblical ideas at all. Isn't that what we do? We take polls. We go on Facebook. We go on, you know, whatever. And we say, hey, I need some help here. What should I do? This person wronged me. My boyfriend wronged me. My girlfriend wronged me. You know, they were doing this or they were doing that. What should I do? And we get all this input. And I just love Paul just says, who do you want to give your ruling? Because we have to ask ourselves. Now, the Bible says there's a multitude of wisdom and counselors, right? And with many counselors make war. You have tons of proverbs and ideas of getting help to make a decision. But that doesn't mean that we go to everybody we can find until we find the one person that gives us what we want to hear. And then we go, I knew it. See, the will of God is accomplished for me. The idea of getting counselors is getting people that are going to be objective and are coming from a place of loving Jesus and loving you. Right? The, the Proverbs also tell us that the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. And the brass tacks, when we go to unbelievers for advice, I'm not saying that they are our enemy, but their whole philosophy is. And their worldview is. And so to try to go to them and then find some sort of godly resolve, it's, it, it doesn't work. It, doesn't, it, it can't be. So we have to ask ourselves on every level, including you know, getting ours in the church if someone's wronged us, who do you really want your, wording to be, your, or your ruling to be from? Do you want it to be biblical or do you want it to be just what you want to hear or just what I want to hear? Because there's a huge difference a lot of times. And it's a friend that comes along and says, hey, let's slow down and consider this. Let's think about this for a, wisdom, for, for a moment. The biggest, I am convinced, the biggest contributor to wisdom is slowing down. Because right now, you know, and we mentioned this last week. Remember, we have no, no idea how many months it is between the household of Chloe notifying Paul that there's a problem and when Paul's response is. Rome had mail. They had a mail system, but it wasn't great. It wasn't the Pony Express, and it wasn't like what we have today. So you have this whole time exchange that takes place. And there's something about whether you're reading the scripture, you're dialoguing with someone, you're in the middle of experiencing a problem. There's a part of us that typically comes from our fallen nature that all of a sudden, you, maybe you've been there. Something's happening, something's unfolding. Maybe it's an argument. Maybe you're realizing you've been wronged and you've lost something financial that's very important to you. Something like that. And what happens? Your pulse goes up and you start getting a little shaky, Right? And you, you, you start getting really nervous. You start, you, you start feeling like, I have to do something right now. That's an adrenal reaction. Right? Your body is releasing adrenaline because your brain perceives, even though it's, even though it's conscious, your, sub, your conscious perceives that something bad is happening and your subconscious responds to that. And you release adrenaline. And all sorts of wild things happen. Like, you, you, your brain actually begins to work faster. That's why people say, like, if you're in an accident, you say it was like slow motion. Because your brain is actually computing things faster than it normally would from adrenal reaction. You, you begin to be able to see better. Your eyes begin to work better. Your pupils change. You stop making urine. You know, all sorts of things happen with an adrenal reaction. And it's all your body preparing for fight or flight. Right? That's what it is. And so wisdom, for our intents and purposes, now obviously if you're being assaulted, then you know, own it and do your thing. But the point being is that when that begins to happen to us, because we perceive evil is afoot or detriment to ourselves, to in that moment not respond with that bodily reaction, but instead to reserve ourselves. Instead of lashing back, you know, somebody says something to you and go, oh yeah, I can one-up that. And we escalate the situation. And again, when we, do, when we do that, what are we doing? We're focusing on the problem and not the person. Because our goal as Christians is love and unity, forgiveness and care. Changed life. Not through a forcing of a changed life, but through dialogue and the grace of God, right? The power of the Spirit. 
So in that moment where we all of a sudden want to just raw and, and, and all, to, to, to take that step back and to evaluate and to think what got said, what could de-escalate this, you know, what, what, what could happen here? You know, it was funny because on our flight to Atlanta, there was this crazy guy and he was convinced the whole, this was a couple weeks ago, the plane was trying to kill him. And there was kind of a couple guys around him and, and they were trying to calm him down and kind of chill him out, you know? And this one dude just kept running up and just dropping F-bombs and being like, you're a moron, just shut up and sit down. And, blah, blah. and one of the guys was just like, oh, hey, why don't you... <laughs> that's probably not helpful. That's probably not good. We're in a tube, 37,000 feet in the air, going 600 miles an hour. I feel like being amped up is a bad plan, right? Just in general. And so, one of the, you know, but this guy kept coming back, kept coming back and kept raging and so forth. And, but the point is, is that every time that guy came up, the guy escalated. I mean, who would have thought? You know, and he got more crazy and more angry. And every time the guy left and went back to his seat and continued his filming and snide comments, the guy de-escalated a little bit. Now, in the end, he had to be restrained. It was kind of a wild deal, but we landed in, in uh, Salt Lake City, but instead of Atlanta. But the point is that there was wisdom to be had in that situation. And, and by some, wisdom was exercised, and by some, it was not. And, and there was a direct relationship into how the situation went when that happened. So to be able to slow down and just think about what would actually be helpful for me, for this individual that I'm going through this thing with, what would actually be helpful? And it's very rarely that verbally assaulting is on the positive side. You know, where oh, that is helpful or that's going to de-escalate a situation. Now, is there a time that you might have to just be authoritative and say, we're stopping this? Sure, yeah. But hopefully that's after we've tried to de-escalate something. It's a wild thing, how wisdom works. So Paul here, he's just saying, look, why, do you, why are we looking for our ruling with someone who lives a life that the church scorns? Where's the wisdom in that? Why aren't we slowing down and considering, you know, nobody's going to get away with anything. Nobody's going to, you know, there's no... Not very often that bad is going to happen from taking a moment, de-escalating ourselves in our own thought life, and being considerate of what God could do in the situation. See, and that's one of the, the other side, another facet to this whole thing. Is Paul's going to say here, he says, verse 7, he says, uh, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged, and why not rather be cheated? So he says, look, he goes, the fact that you have already gone to lawsuit, right? The fact that uh, he says there that you have, uh, let me reread it. Um, the fact that you already have lawsuits among you means you've already been completely defeated. So he's saying, is, he goes, because you've already gone to this place, invoking the world's authority in a church matter, your church is already defeated, and what is he saying? Is he saying they're unsaved? No, he, in fact, he says just the opposite at the end of this chapter. Is he saying that uh, God's forsaken them? Is he saying that, no, he's saying that your power, your influence, your effect on one another in this world is already defeated, it's gone. There's already a huge problem there. It's kind of like every church has a constitution, Right? And the Constitution lays out how the board works and what does the pastor do. And like the Constitution, you have to have one to be a 501c3, which is not the devil, by the way. And if you'd like to talk about that afterwards, I'm fine with that. But you, know, it's, you have to have one to have a 501c3, right? But the problem is, if you go back to your 501c3 Constitution to deal with problems in the church, something really bad has already happened, hasn't it? Like, if you have to go to law to try to stop something from happening in your church, you stopped, the church stopped acting like Christians a long time ago. And he's saying the same thing. He's saying, because you guys go to law, you, you've, you're already defeated in your power. Why? Because you're neglecting and rejecting everything that God has said is true. You're rejecting the idea. Let's say that, that you go to this, this person comes back to you and says, I'm sorry, your mower hit a tree, it's destroyed. You know, how can, I, I don't know how I could ever pay you. I don't have the money. That's why I don't have a mower. That's why I can't replace what I don't have. You know, and, and it's amazing what God could do because you might go to another brother or sister in the gathering and say, can you help us? Because I don't know what to do. He can't afford it, but I live in an HOA. How are we going to deal with this? And what God does and provides can be miraculous. 
That very person that you go to for, for, for counsel could be like, oh, I have two. Yeah, I didn't know I was going to garage sale the other one. You can take my other more. And then this, that gives this other guy a chance to, to replace what he broke. And, and, and the, the lender could, even if they wanted to, take the high road and say, you know what? This one's good enough. I don't need a fancy mower. I, I, I just need to make sure my HOA isn't breathing down my back. And I don't, I don't get fined. So this, this is perfect. I don't need a fancy mower. Right? Because, like we said before, your soul is the only thing that goes into eternity. Your mower is not going with you. I mean, I feel like it should, but that'll be me in heaven. I'll just be on my ride on like, you know, with an O'Doul's instead of, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you know, <laughs> we have low calorie seltzer waters at our house. You can tell. But so, you know, that, that's the way but, but that's how things work out, to realize and to move in a way where you guys, there's eternity at stake. And then God is miraculous. His provision is miraculous. Everything he has for us is good and miraculous. And like the song we just sang, he's been good our whole life. He's been faithful our whole lives. Think about that. God has never been unfaithful to you. He's never cost you anything that was legitimate. He's only given and blessed. And then he also gives material things. Right? He is so kind. And so it's with those truths and those attitudes that we have to come into these financial difficulties and things like that. Now, I want to point out, Paul is not talking about assault. Okay? He's not talking about sexual assault. He's not talking about kidnapping. He's not talking about criminal crimes against people. Obviously, if, if, if your ex is holding your children, you call the authorities. You get Caesar involved, right? We're not saying that. We're talking about financial issues. Financial issues of, of temporal valuables. That's what we're talking about here. So he says, look, if you're doing this, you're already, you've already defeated yourselves. You've already ignored all the promises that God has for you of how good and how big and how powerful he is. And then he just, he asked one of the hardest questions in the entire Bible. Why don't you just rather get cheated? And there's a million answers to that, isn't there? Well, for their sake, obviously. This is about me getting my mower back. This is about justice. This is about, I care about them. That's why I'm suing them. That's why I'll send them to debtor's prison. Because that's why I'll, I'll have the Romans sentence them to be sold into slavery so I can get my mower. I mean, let's just be honest. This has nothing to do with me. I'm taking the high road here. No, he says, why don't you just be cheated? A lot of times when we get cheated, when we have ill that happens to us financially and these type of things, or things that we thought we deserved or whatever that we didn't get, those are actually times where God provides miraculously, where God does incredible things, where we get to visualize, visually observe and partake of his faithfulness. See, ill things that occur for us are opportunities. Now, it sounds like a, some sort of weird pastor church thing to say, but it's the absolute truth of the scripture. That, that gives us opportunity to, to, to see God work. In fact, what is it, 1 Chronicles 16, where it says, The eyes of the Lord roam to, uh, to and fro throughout the earth, searching for those whose heart is towards him, that he may show himself strong for them. He says, I look for people that are having a hard time. People that are going without. People that are just looking to me because they have no other option. He says, I look for those people and I show myself strong for them. So we don't have to fear weakness. We don't have to fear poverty or being ripped off or something like that. We don't have to fear that. Right? We can say like Job, though he slay me, I will trust him. Whatever befall me, I know that God is able to, to work past it. He's got great things for me. That's to be spiritually minded. That's, that's wisdom. To, to focus on what the scripture says and to move forward in that. He's going to go on verse 8. Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So evidently there was also some other things, whether it was uh, frivolous lawsuits or people just trying to force to get their way, whatever it was. But he says, you're wronging your brothers and sisters. Verse 9, or do you not know that, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, uh, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers inherit the kingdom of God. So you go, ha, I knew it. These people are about to lose their salvation. Can we agree that that's what these people are doing? Isn't that exactly what's all happening in this church? They're swindling? What's a reviler? I wrote down the exact definition. Reviling someone is to criticize in an abusive or hostile way or to spread negative information about. So a reviler is 90% of the internet, right? It's to correct abusively. You idiot. You moron. Are you serious? Right? It's what, pretty much what every editorial news station does. They revile. And so it's important to know that we can get all upset and go, oh, I knew the adulterers, man. I knew they were gone, clearly. I knew the, the immoral people. I knew the swindlers would go. I knew they would go. But a reviler? Are we guilty of reviling? Let's be honest. Do we revile people? At the very least, we do it in our hearts. When somebody says something, and instead of focusing on the person and considering that God loves them, that Christ paid his blood for them, we revile them. We go, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. And what you think is stupid, too. And I, if, you disgust me. Are you serious? Right? All the things that we say in our heart, we revile. Instead of lovingly go, that's an interesting idea. Have you thought about this before? Have you considered that before? I disagree with that because I think that this is what God wants to do. Right? There's ways that we can interact with people that we absolutely, completely disagree with on a complete fundamental level that is not reviling. And that's what we're called to do. So now he comes to the issue and he says, these people, they don't receive Christ. They don't, or they don't, excuse me, they don't go to heaven. They don't inherit God's kingdom. That's what he says. But check out verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So he makes this point. He says, look, you need to know something. Everybody who does that, they don't go to heaven. Who's he writing to right now? He's writing to a church of people that do that. Can we agree with that? Does that seem contextually true? Is there any disagreement about that? I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just saying, like, are we, can we agree that that's who he's writing to? This is what the household of Chloe has said. All this stuff is going on in the church. And then Paul says, don't you know that people that do that aren't going to heaven? And then he says to them, that's who you were. Now, wait a minute. That's what they're doing. So this is what Paul writes in almost every letter. Stop acting like who you're not. Stop acting like who you used to be. He says, you're acting like unbelievers. You're doing the things that actually causes God to cast people away from himself forever. But that's not who you are. This is really important for how we look at what the scriptures say. We always say things like, you are what you eat, right? And what we're saying is, if you eat poorly, then you'll have poor health. We always say things like, you are what you think, and so forth. When we think and do things, they develop habitual patterns of thought, and they, they're sin, right? They're destructive. And we destroy ourselves in, in, in this world, and we destroy what's around us. But Paul makes an objection. He says, that's not who you are. You're doing those things, but it's not who you are. That's who you were. And you go, well, I don't know. See, they, they leave their, what happens is they, 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 they lose their salvation because of that. The problem with that idea is that you're saying that they are somebody that they're not. If you say that, oh, he's talking to them, to Christians who do those things, and then you get into this weird thing about, well, the word do, it's actually the word practice. And if you go to 1 John 3, it says that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. One big problem with that, the word practice actually isn't there in John, in 1 John. It's actually just the word do. And the one, per, the one place, or one of the only places in the scripture where Paul talks about practicing sin is when he's referring to himself in Romans 7, and he says, I always practice, literally, the things I don't want to do as a Christian. So if you try to make this argument for your sin is practiced, that means you're unsaved. I'm not trying to be a jerk here. I'm really not. You're doing that from a place of misunderstanding because that's not there. It's not in the scripture. So what we're looking at is what happened? What actually happened? 
Because he says that's not who you are anymore. So why is it that's not who they are anymore if they're currently doing it? Is this muddled or are you guys rolling with me? Because there's a lot of past sense. All right. All right. Were, are, and sinning. You were with those people. You got saved, and now you're not that person anymore because you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, right? 2 Corinthians 5. And so Paul's saying, stop acting and doing the things that are so destructive, it separates them forever from God, people who don't have faith. But he, and he's making the point, he says, that's who you were, but something happened to you. The first thing he says, you were washed. Now just roll with me for a second. So washed people were doing bad things. But they were still washed, right? You might recall there's a, there's a certain thing where Jesus says to Peter, very interesting in a kind of an allegorical way, where Peter says, he says, let me wash your feet. Or Jesus says, let me wash your feet. Peter says, no, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you'll have nothing to do with, you, we can't have anything to do with each other. And Peter says, oh, then don't wash my feet, just wash my whole body. You're like, if I was one of the other guys, I'd be like, thanks for making that awkward, Pete. You know? <laughs> but, uh, but he says, uh, he says, wash my whole body. And Jesus says, you don't need your whole body washed. You just need your feet washed because you're already clean by the word that I've spoken to you. So he's making a point that you're a clean individual, but we still, you know, we still talk to the Lord. We still want to repent from sin, not to gain forgiveness for salvation, to become new. We're already new. But to deal with the destructive reality of sin in our hearts for those around us. So he says you're washed. Now, just this, this, I'm not trying to be a jerk here, but it's in, it's in a weird, not weird, but it's in kind of a, the, the, the tense is, and I had to write it all down because it's a lot of tenses, but it's the aorist, the aorist middle uh, indicative. So you're welcome for that. Now we all know that salvation is eternal. No. The aorist middle indicative means this. The aorist form of the Greek verb is that it was a snapshot event that took, that took place in the past. Does that make sense? So it's, you got washed, period, brackets, it happened, okay? The middle, the, the middle tense, or why it's called the aorist middle, means that the subject of the verb caused it to happen, which our Calvinist brothers will not like. But it means that you decided to get washed in that snapshot event. Does that make sense? The last portion, the indicative, means that it really happened, so the idea is you were washed because you chose washing and you really got washed. Does that make sense? So he's saying you're clean people. To who? Suing, sexing, greedy, attention-seeking Corinthians. Those are the washed people that he's talking to, right? So the next thing he says, you've been justified. And the justified is actually, it's not the middle tense anymore. It's the present, well, I have to look. The present passive, or excuse me, the aorist passive indicative. So it means that you were justified, it happened. Justified means that you were justified before God. You were deemed innocent of sin because of what Jesus did. So you were deemed, it happened. It was a snapshot event. It occurred. You were deemed innocent, Right? But instead of middle, meaning you made yourself innocent, it's the passive, which means that God, it's called the divine passive, it means that God made you innocent. And then again, the indicative, it really happened that way. Does that make sense? So he's, first he says, you had a snapshot event where you got washed by faith. You chose that event and allowed it to occur. And now it really happened and you really are washed. The second with the justification is that there was a snapshot event that you were justified before God. You were declared innocent. It's passive, which means that God declared you innocent. It had nothing to do with you making yourself innocent. And lastly, it's indicative. It really happened. And it's the same tenses with the last, not just the, 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 uh, the, the uh, sanctified, or I was saying justified. It's sanctified, which means to be set aside or holy, but it's also with the justification. So Paul is not saying to them, if you keep going, you'll get unsaved. What he's saying to them is, you're doing things that cost people everything. 
You're doing things that God judges and says, you can't be around me if you're going to do that. You're doing some of the most destructive behaviors that there is. Isn't it interesting that reviling? I don't, we don't need to even talk about sexual sin, do we? I mean, we're pretty much all programmed. Like the day we get saved, it's like, and by the way, don't fornicate or be gay, and you're gold. We get that, right? <laughs> but let's talk about the reviling, the abusive instructions we can give people or the abusive things we say about them. That's, that, I think that's more, more where we live. We have to be very careful with that. But he says that this is what people do that are going to hell. And it's the things that send them there. And then he says, but that's not who you are anymore because this event happened in your life. So he's not threatening them with their salvation. He's not saying, you better clean up your act or you're done for. He's not doing any of that. He's saying, you could do something so great with your life and your church if you wanted to. You could have such an impact for Christ. You could save people's lives with wisdom and kindness and walking in our callings. And it, you, know what, you know what sucks about this world? There's so many other things to do besides that. Have you noticed that? There's so many other things to do. There's so many fun things to do, not bad things. It's so easy to focus on everything else. And this is the big ripoff of Satan. I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but this is truly the big lie of Satan. It's that you'll be happy if you don't. That's the lie. If you reject the things of Christ, you'll be better off and you'll be happy because you'll throw off all those evil Christian restrictions that just bind you down. Do they? I mean, actually, do, do, they, do they really bind you down? Is considering God's grace, does that hold you down? Is being kind to another individual, is that really holding you back? How do you feel after you're really rude to someone? You feel good? You want to pass that along? Is it a state that you want to live in, that I want to live in? If I'm full of wrath and envy and jealousy and destruction and I want to destroy those around me, is that like happy, happy times? When I'm feeling rage or, or I'm feeling um, inadequacy or I'm feeling anxiety, is that, is that, is Satan right? I mean, are those, is that the place to be? Or is it security, comfort, knowing that, that God's not after me to try to just get me to abstain from things, that he's for me to get me to experience him and have a friendship with him? I mean, we have to be honest. Is sin, other than for a season, that great? Sure it is. We all, I mean, the Bible acknowledges, right? Hebrews, was it Hebrews 13? Sin is pleasurable for a season? Yeah. If it wasn't, we wouldn't do it, right? <laughs> if it didn't feel good to tell someone off, we wouldn't do it. But sin is pleasurable for a season. But afterwards, it yields death in us and those around us. So I encourage you, God has great things for you, whoever you are. He wouldn't mean he has great things for you. He has, he has great personal peace for you. He has a great relationship with you of knowing that just because of what Jesus did, he's not mad at you. I mean, think about that. God's not chapped at you today. And it has nothing to do with anything you did this morning. You could have read and prayed from 3 a.m. on and then, and then like, I don't know, levitated in here, <laughs> fasted from the coffee, Right? And then somehow, like, been placed in your seat by God, and he's no less mad at that person than he is at you if you argued with your family on the way to church, if you dropped an F-bomb on somebody in traffic. You just, one person came with one set of fruit, and one person came with another set of fruit. And one set of fruit was rotten, and it hurt, and one set of fruit was great, and it didn't. But your works, whatever you did this morning, it did nothing for God's anger towards you because that was all accomplished in Christ. The blood of Christ purchased your peace with God, not you. The blood of Christ purchased your right state with God. The fact that the Father looks at you in Jesus-colored glasses and he says, that one's my, my daughter, my son. That's one of my children. Not because you tried hard this week, but because... He loves you, and he paid for it. And you said, okay, okay, yeah. I could use eternal forgiveness and a really good friend in high places, and I could use that. I want that forgiveness. And he says, then you have it. 
So now moving forward in your Christian life, it's not a matter of trying to get his approval or anything like that. It's a matter of walking in the wisdom. What's, what does he want for you? What's the right thing to do in this situation? You don't have to worry about tomorrow. I love, Jesus was pretty clear about that, right? Sermon on the Mount, familiar with it? Where he says, don't worry about tomorrow. It's got enough evil of its own. Tomorrow will be evil. Good news, guys. Tomorrow's going to be evil, right? The world system's going to be in full swing. Rich will get richer. Poor will get poorer. Every 25 seconds, a woman will be sexually assaulted. I mean, we're talking terrible things are going to happen tomorrow. But you know what? We're going to go out tomorrow with Christ on our side into the massive evil that's out there, and we're going to be able to make a difference because we have Christ. And that's our hope. And so I encourage you, if you're wrestling with something, if you're struggling, you know, if you want to come talk to somebody, myself's available, my wife's available, the other people up here to pray with, but be honest with yourself and be honest with God. And he'll heal. Divine healing is what he promises us. Emotionally, spiritually, divine healing. So there's great things. And we can go out tomorrow and help all those people that are going to be decimated by this world and be a part of the, the solution. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great grace and your great kindness. And Lord, we thank you for your word that is an encouragement to us. Lord, we don't want to insist on ourselves. Lord, we don't want our first reactions to be insisted to insist on ourselves lord help us to be those that take a moment take a breath and to consider wisdom may we be those that invest in what you have to say and in your kingdom may we be those that invest in letting you get closer to us so that we can be known by you and we can know you you've been very kind to us you have followed us all the days of our life with faithfulness and with goodness we freely acknowledge that Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.